Did you listen to the words that you just sang? Grace that exceeds our sin and our guilt. And that sin and guilt are described by the hymn writer, sin and despair like the sea waves cold threaten the soul with infinite loss. Have you been there? Felt like sin and failure was washing over you and you were drowning in it? Dark is the stain that we cannot hide. What can avail to wash it away? Grace that is greater, yes, grace untold, points to the refuge, the mighty cross, God's grace. Many of us have come to faith in Jesus Christ. Many of us have experienced that grace. If you have not yet experienced it, I encourage you before you leave today to talk to somebody about that. But even those of us who've experienced that grace still have to deal with the oopses of life. We still have to deal with the sins and the failures that come, even when we know Jesus. And we wonder, how have those impacted my life? Will I survive? Can I recover? And I hope this morning that the example of Joshua and Israel and the Gibeonites can encourage us as we think about recovering from failure. As we think about the fact that our God is greater than any oopses, than any failures that you and I can commit. God is sovereign over them, and He can graciously redeem them. And so if you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn with me to Joshua chapter 9. We'll be looking right at the end of chapter 9, verses 22 and following. And then we'll be doing a quick flyover of chapter 10 as we think about a couple of examples of God being greater than our oops and of God's grace redeeming our failures. The first example is is one that we need to grab a hold of, that God's impact on the Gibeonites through human failure demonstrates God's grace. If you go back, if you think back to last week's sermon, If you think about some of the things that we talked about with those handrails and trying to avoid a fall, and yet Israel fell. And because of that, as you read chapter 9, there's sin all over the place. There's failure all over the place. You've got the Gibeonites who are coming to deceive Israel, and they succeed. You've got Israel refusing or forgetting to pray and talk to God about it. And you've just got all kinds of a mess that's created. And that's where we pick up the story at the end of chapter 9, and we see how God is going to use that in spite of the failures. The Gibeonites, they were deceptive. They lied. And Israel believed the lies. They bought in because they didn't talk to God about it. And while we talked last week about the fact that there is a seed of faith in the Gibeonites, there's a little bit of faith there The real reason for their lying and deception was to save their own skin, and they admit that in verse 24. They answer Joshua, because it was told your servants for a certainty that the Lord your God had commanded his servant Moses to give you all the land and to destroy all the inhabitants of the land from before you. So we feared greatly for our lives because of you and did this thing. So that's their main motivation And Israel makes the treaty, and they're stuck with the consequences of that treaty. But God, 
But God uses failures for good. He uses failures for good in the lives of the Gibeonites. It's it's amazing. It's amazing grace. Look at what we're told as the story continues to unfold. Verse 25. Now the Gibeonites say to Joshua, Behold, we are in your hand. Do whatever seems good and right in your sight to do to us. Do it. So he did this to them and delivered them out of the hand of the people of Israel, and they did not kill them. But Joshua made them that day cutters of wood and drawers of water for the congregation and for the altar of the Lord to this day in the place that he should choose. See, last week as we ended the story, they were told they were going to be drawers of wood or cutters of wood and drawers of water for the congregation. Now Joshua shifts that a little bit. He says, you are also going to do that for the tabernacle, later for the temple. And that may have been a way of limiting the ability of the Gibeonites to influence Israel into idolatry. But more than that, it's God's grace. Because it exposes them to God and to how people come to God. They are going to cut the wood that will be used for the altar, for the sacrifices by which people could come to God. They're to draw the water for the ceremonies of cleansing that can be used to to be picturing the washing away of sin. And God uses the deception of the Gibeonites and behind that the deception of Satan, his tactics to fuel the fire of his altar. I mean, think about that. He uses their very deception to be part of what keeps the sacrificial fires burning. The curse becomes... A blessing for the Gibeonites as God's grace is at work as he's greater than the oops. The psalmist says it this way in Psalm 84, for a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. And if you could allow me to paraphrase the rest of it, I would rather be a woodcutter and a water drawer for the house of my God than to dwell in the cities of the Canaanites. That's the grace of God working in the Gibeonites to put them in the very place where they can see what God's grace is like. And they faithfully do their job day after day. In fact, when Joshua writes this in verse 27, he says they're still doing it. They're still faithful. And you can read the book of Joshua. You can read the book of Judges. You can read on into the historical books and you will never find the Gibeonites turning against Israel. You'll never find them being like a a fifth column to betray Israel's trust in them. In fact, what we see is they become more and more and more a part of the people of God. Later in the book of Joshua, when they're dividing up the land, the Levites are given cities to live in among the people, and one of those cities is Gibeon. The Levites, the priests, are going to live among the Gibeonites. In 1 Samuel 7, you remember the story how the Philistines capture the Ark of the Covenant and then it's being sent back to Israel and the Israelites are afraid of taking it? It ends up in Kiriath-Jerim, which was one of the cities of the Gibeonite coalition. And it ends up in that city for 20 years. The Ark of God dwells among the Gibeonites. Later on, it's not just the ark, but it is the ark and the tabernacle and the altar of burnt offerings are at a high place in Gibeon, 1 Chronicles 21 tells us. And God not only blesses them, but he uses them. 1 Chronicles 12 tells us 
that among David's mighty men was a man named Ishmael of Gibeon. And he wasn't just one of the mighty men. He was the captain, a leader of the, the nucleus of 30, a Gibeonite. Later, Israel's carried off into captivity when Cyrus the Great allows them to return. Some do, not a lot. But among them, Nehemiah tells us, were 95 sons of Gibeon. And Nehemiah 3 tells us they were among the people who helped to rebuild the wall. More and more and more, they become part of the people of God as Gentiles. Just like we saw happened to Rahab earlier in the book of Joshua. And that brings us to the key point that we need to grab from this last part of chapter 9, which is God may transform our failure to positively impact others if we are faithful. See, that if we are faithful is important because you could read this and say, well, then I'll just go out and sin and fail and, and God can turn it into good. And Paul would say, should we sin more so more grace abounds? God forbid. That's not the point. The point is when we sin, when we fail, and we turn around and we run to God in repentance and faith, then he can use that failure for good in the lives of people. Your testimony of what God has done in restoring you after sin or after failure can be a testimony that moves others to seek repentance and faith and grace. We're all broken people. If we only allowed perfect people to come to church, this worship center would be empty and this pulpit would be empty. We are all in need of marvelous, infinite, matchless grace. It's freely bestowed on all who believe. The late Francis Schaeffer in one of his books tells the story of how in the early days of the community that they established in Europe called Labrie, they didn't have a lot of money. And there was a young woman there and she was going to bake a cake and she mixed up the ingredients and ended up with just this bowl of goo that wasn't good for anything. And she was going to throw it out, but they didn't have a lot of money. And so Francis Shaver's wife, Edith, came along and she said, well, what did you put in there? And the, the woman told her. And so Edith took some other ingredients and mixed them in. And Francis Shaver said she made the best noodles he'd ever tasted. She took, he, she took the goo and she made it into something good. And that's what God does. He takes the goo and the messes of Gibeonites and Israelites and Bill Abernathy and you, and he transforms our goo, our failure, into something that can positively impact our lives and others. So that's the first example. The second example is all of chapter 10. So we're going to have to do a quick flyover of that chapter and look. But that chapter shows us the impact of Israel's failure on God's unfolding plan. Israel had to wonder. God had designed for them to take the land, to drive out the Canaanites, to kill the Canaanites. And if you're wondering about that, go back a few weeks and, and listen to the sermon where I talked about that. But now they didn't do it. Now they are in a position where they've allowed Canaanites to live. Is that going to derail God's plan? What's going to happen? And we wonder that even as the story in chapter 10 unfolds. Because the treaty that they make with Gibeon draws out opposition 
And let me just say as kind of an aside that if you decide to do what we just talked about, repent, pursue God, seek restoration, find grace in God, there will be people who don't like that. If you come to faith in Jesus Christ, there will be people who are upset about that. You can expect opposition. And the Gibeonites have sided now with God and Israel, and they're facing opposition. In fact, look at what we're told beginning at verse 1 of chapter 10. As soon as Adonai Zedek, the king of Jerusalem, heard how Joshua had captured Ai and had devoted it to destruction, doing to Ai and its king as he'd done to Jericho and its king, and how the inhabitants of Gibeon had made peace with Israel and were among them, he feared greatly. Why? Because Gibeon was a great city, like one of the royal cities. And because it was greater than Ai, and all its men were warriors. So this is not a, a small town. This is a, a large city, a large coalition of cities. And the Gibeonites have a great army. And the king of Jerusalem is feeling threatened because they're not that far away from Jerusalem. So Adonai Zedek, king of Jerusalem, sent to Hoham, king of Hebron, to Piram, king of Jarmuth. By the way, Spellcheck didn't like these names at all as I was running it. <laughs> to Japhia, king of Lachish, to Debir, king of Eglon, saying, Come up to me and help me, and let us strike Gibeon, for it has made peace with Joshua and with the people of Israel. So they are going to teach the Gibeonites a lesson. They are going to use them or make of them an example by coming and punishing them for turning to Israel. So how in the world does God use that? Well, it gets even more complicated because Israel's treaty with Gibeon means they must defend them. Now, if I'm Joshua and Israel in my sinful, selfish person, I'm thinking, well, hey, we can't kill the Gibeonites, but let's the, let the other Canaanites do it for us. But that's not their approach. They are people of integrity, people of their word. Their covenant binds them to Gibeon, and so they must defend them. The men of Gibeon sent to Joshua at the camp at Gilgal saying, do not relax your hand from your servants. Come up to us quickly and save us and help us, for all the kings of the Amorites who dwell in the hill country are gathered against us. Say, all right, how in the world is God using that? This coalition of five powerful city-states coming up against Gibeon. Now Israel's got to fight against people to defend people who lied to them. How in the world is God going to use that mess? Well, he does. Because those five city-states with their armies, guess what? They're now outside of their powerful city walls. They are all gathered in one place. Israel's not going to have to lay siege to all of those cities with powerful armies inside. Instead, God draws those five armies together sovereignly to give them into Israel's hands in one battle. Followed up by mopping up. I want you to notice in the passage as we walk through it, the alternating Joshua and Israel and God. Because Joshua and Israel are at work, but God is also at work in doing this. And so Israel now marches all night to keep their word. They go some 25 miles up about 4,000 feet in elevation to reach Gibeon, and God promises victory. Look at verse 7. So Joshua went up from Gilgal, he and all the people of war with him, and all the mighty men of valor. And the Lord said to Joshua, do not fear them. 
For I have given them into your hands. Not a man of them shall stand before you. Joshua and Israel and God. Then Joshua and Israel boldly attack and God gives them the victory by causing panic among the Canaanites. So Joshua came upon them suddenly, having marched up all night from Gilgal. They're not expecting him to attack. And the Lord then threw them into a panic before Israel. Same kind of wording we get in in Exodus when Pharaoh's troops panic at the Red Sea. God sends that panic. But that's not all. Now Israel pursues the Canaanites who are running away, and God smart bombs them with hailstones. Look at verse 10. Israel struck them with a great blow at Gibeon and chased them by the way of the ascent of Beth Horon and struck them as far as Ezekiah and Makeda. And they fled before Israel. While they were going down the ascent from Beth Horon, the Lord threw down large stones from heaven on them as far as Ezekiah, and they died. There were more who died because of the hailstones than the sons of Israel killed with the sword. So these smart bomb hailstones are only hitting Canaanites. And more Canaanites are killed by the hailstones than the Israelites killed because God is fighting for Israel. So Israel and God, Israel and God, Israel and God. And then we come to the passage where we see God fighting in a really unique way. One of the hardest passages to interpret in the book of Joshua. And somebody before the first service said, I can't wait to hear how you uh, do this. And I said, yeah, me too. Probably need to make up my mind, huh? This is a disputed passage. There are good and godly men who will take different positions. I'm going to lay out some of those positions. I'm going to tell you my position. You can disagree with me. This is not an article of salvation, okay? But it is the most disputed passage in the book, and it's probably next to the falling of the walls of Jericho, the most familiar passage. At that time, Joshua spoke to the Lord in the day when the Lord gave the Amorites over to the sons of Israel. And he said in the sight of Israel, Sun, stand still at Gibeon, and moon in the valley of Ajalon. And the sun stood still and the moon stopped. Now, let me just pause for a moment. You understand, this is from a human perspective. We know scientifically that the earth revolves around the sun, but this is the language of appearance. The sun stood still and the moon stopped until the nation took vengeance on their enemies. Is this this not written in the book of Jasher? We got two references to that book in the Old Testament. We don't know anything about it. It's a lost history book, not inspired. The sun stopped in the midst of heaven. And did not hurry to set for about a whole day. There has not been a day like it before or since when the Lord heeded the voice of a man, for the Lord fought for Israel. So Joshua returned and all Israel with him to the camp at Gilgal. Now there's a couple of things we need to notice before we get into what happened. The first is that Joshua makes this request of God because he doesn't want the Canaanites to escape and regroup. And God answers somehow, so the Canaanites are continually beaten. They don't get to regroup. Some of them escape into their cities, but their cities are are hardly protected anymore. I also want you to notice that God heeded the voice of a man. Joshua prayed. Remember last week we saw his prayerlessness? Now he prays. And what a prayer. 
I mean, that's a prayer of great faith that God would somehow extend the day so that they can have vengeance on their enemies. The text says there's never been a day like it. We need to hang on to that. It's an unusual, very unusual day. This section is poetry. You may read somebody who says, well, this is just poetry. And, you know, in poetry, weird things happen. Mountains clap and waves clap. And so it didn't really happen. It's just poetic. It is poetry. I'm not going to agree that nothing happened. But we do want to recognize it's poetry. But we also, as we come to this, need to understand that that God can do anything he chooses to do. That what we call natural laws are simply God's normal way of working in his universe. God says it very plainly in the book of Jeremiah. The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. Behold, I am the Lord, the God of all flesh. Is anything too hard for me? And the answer is no. Nothing's too hard for him. All right, so what happened? Well, here's one theory. I don't agree with it, but here's the theory. Joshua's prayer was really about him wanting the hot sun not to beat down on his tired troops who've been marching all night long. And that Middle Eastern sun would have been hard for them to deal with. And so he's praying that there will be a lunar eclipse or that it will be a really cloudy day. The problem with that is there have been all kinds of lunar eclipses in the history of man, and we in West Michigan certainly know about cloudy days. So I don't think that fits the passage. Another theory is that, that God somehow supernaturally extended the light of the day. And I kind of like that one. Uh, in Genesis, we read in Genesis 1, God said, let there be light, and, and the sun and the moon aren't created till later. So God certainly has the ability to supernaturally provide light. The problem I have with that theory is that there's an emphasis on movement in this passage. The sun stands still, it stood still, it stopped. The phrase in verse 13, it did not hurry to set, is the normal Hebrew expression for a sunset. Then there's the theory that God somehow altered the normal rotation of the earth around the sun. And you understand that there are a lot of geophysical problems with that. Because if the earth's rotation slows, that affects gravity, it affects tides, it affects all kinds of things. But God. That's the view I believe is correct. Because I think it fits the text best. God slows the rotation. And God says, by the way, gravity, waves, just control yourselves. I'm just going to do this for a little while. It'll all be back to normal later. By the way, if you read, and you might, because it still floats around out there, there's this this kind of urban myth that uh, the Nassau scientists were studying the solar days, and they found that there was a solar day missing. And people say, see, Joshua's long day. But none of that's true. So we believe the text, it's not based on what NASA scientists say, and it seems to me to best fit the text to say, God did something really, really, really miraculous. But don't get lost in that and miss the point of the passage. The point of the passage is that God is at work even in failures. In fact, the sun and the moon are Canaanite deities, and so kind of the point of it is, guess who's in charge of even the Canaanite deities? or at least the ones they thought were gods, Jehovah. And God is at work 
And he uses failures for his glory. He uses it to allow Israel to conquer the south all in one major battle and then some mopping up. And so the five armies are routed and they're destroyed outside their city walls because God gave them into Israel's hand. Verse 16, these five kings fled and they hid themselves in the cave at Makeda. And it was told to Joshua, the five kings have been found hidden in the cave at Makeda. And Joshua said, roll large stones against the mouth of the cave and set men by it to guard them. But do not stay there yourselves. Pursue your enemies. Attack their rear guard. Do not let them enter their cities. For the Lord your God has given them into your hand. When Joshua and the sons of Israel had finished striking them with a great blow until they were wiped out. And when the remnant that remained to them had entered into the fortified cities. So they're still going to be mopping up needed. Then all the people returned safe to Joshua in the camp at Makeda. Not a man moved his tongue against any of the people of Israel. Now there's a weird phrase. Anybody said that this week? Nobody moved their tongue against me. What it's saying is, not only were they afraid to attack Israel, they were afraid to even say bad things about Israel. They're terrified again. The five kings are captured. They're locked away in a cave. Then Joshua said, open the mouth of the cave and bring those five kings out to me from the cave. And they did so. And they brought those five kings out to him from the cave, the king of Jerusalem, the king of Hebron, the king of Jarmuth, the king of Lachish, the king of Eglon. When they brought those kings out to Joshua, Joshua summoned all the men of Israel and said to the chiefs of the men of war who had gone with him, come near, put your feet on the necks of these kings. That's a way of saying, you are under our feet. We are dominant. Then they came near and put their feet on their necks. And Joshua said to them, words that should sound familiar, Do not be afraid or dismayed. Be strong and courageous. The same words God had spoken to him back in chapter 1. For thus the Lord will do to all your enemies against whom you fight. And afterwards Joshua struck them and put them to death. And he hanged them on five trees. And they hung on the trees until evening. You'll remember from a story a few weeks ago that the law said you couldn't leave the bodies hanging. And so at the time of the going down of the sun, Joshua commanded and they took them down from the trees and threw them into the cave where they had hidden themselves and they set large stones against the mouth of the cave which remain to this day. It's an interesting transition. That cave was the king's hiding place. Then it became their jail cell. Now it's their grave, but more than that, it's another monument of rocks pointing to the victory of God for his people. And you can read on through verses 28 to 39, and you'll see conquest of city after city after city. Sometimes cities whose kings were just executed have gotten new kings, and they have to be mopped up. But those cities are, are, pluck, or are ripe for plucking because their armies have been destroyed. And you'll find as you read that passage, there are cities that weren't part of the coalition that are captured. And it's all really summarized well by verses 30 and 32. The Lord gave it also and its king into the hand of Israel. And he struck it with the edge of the sword and every person in it. He left none remaining in it. And he did to its king as he had done to the king of Jericho. And the Lord gave Lachish into the hand of Israel. And he captured it on the second day and struck it with the edge of the sword. And every person in it as he had done to Libna. 
If you read verses 28 through the end of the chapter, you'll see those phrases I've underlined over and over. Every person, none remaining, fought against it, captured, struck with the sword, so that by the end of the chapter, two-thirds of the land is now under the control of Israel. So Joshua struck the whole land, the hill country and the Negev and the lowlands and the slopes and all their kings. He left none remaining but devoted to destruction all that breathed, just as the Lord God of Israel commanded. And Joshua struck them from Kadesh Barnea as far as Gaza and all the country of Goshen as far as Gibeon. Those are basically cities and boundaries of the whole southern region of Palestine. And Joshua captured all these kings in their land, notice that phrase, at one time. Because the Lord God of Israel fought for Israel and Joshua returned and all Israel with him to the camp at Gilgal. They did it all at one time. Why? Because God took the oops. He took the treaty that never should have been made that was based on deception and he drew all the opposition out so that it could be dealt with much more easily. Israel sinfully made a treaty, but oops, God is greater than the oops. And here's the key point. God can transform our failure into his sovereign plan by his sovereign power. Israel's oops, Gibeon's deception didn't derail the plan of God to give the land to his people. God blessed Joshua. God listened to Joshua. God used Joshua in spite of the failure earlier in chapter 9. Because Joshua's sin was not high-handed. He was repentant. He turned that failure over to God and God used him. And you and I, we can move ahead, leaving failure behind and trust God. Because he'll do the same for us. He will turn our failures into his sovereign plan by his grace if we run to him in repentance. The greatest example is the cross. What we sang about as we started the sermon, freely bestowed grace. Look, there is flowing a crimson flow. But the cross looks like, from a human perspective, a great disaster. It is mankind's worst sin, vile rebellion against God, crucifying God in the flesh. And yet it was all part of God's sovereign plan to offer salvation to you and to me. And if you don't know that God, if you don't know Christ, talk to me. Talk to that friend who brought you. If you're watching online, call our office and allow us to share with you how you can come into a personal relationship with the God of grace. And if you do know him, and you're staring maybe a failure, an oops moment in the face, or maybe you're looking at something that you've done in the past that's weighing on you, run to the cross. Because it's at the cross where we find forgiveness and restoration. A man by the name of Lloyd Stephan wrote into the Christian Century magazine a number of years ago a story about King Frederick of Prussia who was visiting one of his prisons one day and all of the prisoners were coming up to him and protesting that they didn't deserve to be there, that, that they were framed, they weren't guilty, they should be let go and and as the king was watching, he saw one man sitting over the corner. And so he made his way over to that man and he said, Sir, why are you here? And the man looked up and he said, Your majesty. He said, I am here because of robbery. And he said, 
were you guilty? And he said, yes, sir, I fully deserve my punishment. The king turned to his guards and he said, release this man. I don't want him corrupting all these other innocent people. (laughs) That's our God. We come to him saying, I am guilty. I deserve anything you give me. I repent. I ask for forgiveness. And God in grace forgives and redeems our failure. Our gracious God can turn even our failures into good. And folks, that's a greater miracle than the sun standing still. That he works in your life and my life to bring good even out of the goo and the messes that we make of life. So run to the cross. Run to him for forgiveness because he is greater than our failures. Let's pray. Father, Jude says it this way, that you are able to keep us from falling and to present us faultless. But you're also the one who's able to redeem us when we fall and present us faultless because of the grace of Jesus Christ at the cross. And so we echo with Jude that we stand in awe of the God of grace who is worthy of all of our praise through Jesus Christ our Lord. In his name we pray. Amen.